Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to Just Sustainability, curious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. last episode of Just Sustainability, we met Dr. Fiola Jacobs from the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. We learned about how her work in sustainability and equity was prompted by her experiences with natural disasters as a child, and she told us about how she understood sustainability and the importance of access for sustainable development. This episode will pick up where we left off and listen to the remainder of the conversation that I had with Fiola. After learning about her views about the importance of access, I asked Fiola about how she approached improving access for marginalized people and communities. Her response to that question provides us with a number of really useful tips that I think would be handy for anyone concerned with sustainability. Here's what she said. Well, when I'm thinking about my work right now, the primary work I'm thinking about is teaching. So with teaching, um, one of the things, a uh, lot of my students come into the classroom with various <laughs> various experiences of privilege and oppression. Um, and one of the things um, I really try to do in my class is make sure that it's a space where everybody can come with um, all of their, with their full self to the class and we can all learn from each other. Um, one of the things that I try to do when curating my class materials, for instance, um, in terms of helping to train these future urban planners is to emphasize the people that not a lot of communities have had access to formalize, to these formalized Western education systems. And so I encourage my students to think about the fact that if we're seeing communities were denied access to academia or were not interested in taking part in um, formalized academia as we know it, um, then how are we going to get all of our knowledge from journal articles? So if we are acknowledging that urban planning is largely an old, a field that has been dominated by older white um, Western men, how are we going to then turn to those same people to look for knowledge for working with diverse communities or communities living under oppression. And so that's why in my class, when I'm curating materials in my syllabi, I am turning to lots of different sources. So I'm turning to videos that community agencies, community organizations may have produced. I'm turning to fiction because I think fiction despite um, fiction is not just made up, fiction is also coming from communities and representative of communities and communities have been writing and sharing stories and storytelling for generations. And we need to turn to some of these stories um, to understand our possibilities, especially um, when we're trying to imagine different worlds, right? Like when we're trying to, I would say urban planning especially is an imaginative, an imaginative pursuit. So we're not just saying this is how the world is right now, but we're also trying to see what could this environment look like in the future? What could this world look like in the future? Um, what visions 
do we have for ourselves and our communities? And for me, that is an excellent description of speculative fiction or sci-fi and fantasy fiction. So you see a lot of people in COVID during this time of this pandemic turning to Octavia Butler and Nalo Hopkinson's and other speculative and um, I'm forgetting Ursula Legin, I might be pronouncing that wrong, um, but we're turning to these writers to be like, what else can we imagine for ourselves? What else can communities imagine for themselves? Um, I also make sure that I have community members who are experiencing the brunt of environmental justice concerns be able to come into my class and speak with my students and also get paid for that time because I think somebody sharing their personal experience with oppression, with activism, etc., is very much, uh, that's work, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of times when we in class, when we invite guest speakers to classes, we don't pay them because um, we think that they should be associated with the more formal organization and this is part of their paid work but the reality is a lot of the environmental justice activists and community members there that might not be their paid work they might be doing other things um, and even if it was their paid work this is additional work that i'm asking them to do to come in and speak to a class of mainly white future urban planners about their experiences with racism and environmental injustices. And so for me, being new to Minnesota, one of the things that I am really trying to do is sit and listen to people a lot. Um, I came to Minnesota about two years ago for work um, and did a lot of work in my postdoc with community organizations but I by no means think that I have learned enough where I can decide what communities need for themselves. So I, as a researcher, I try to as much as possible be a resource for communities. So what, rather than determining what communities need for themselves. And so I don't even think I'm at the point of co-developing with communities at this point. I'm at the point of really listening to communities um, showing up to community meetings, trying to be a resource, whether um, that means providing space, like um, booking a room at the university for or at Europe for a meeting that community members might want to have for a new initiative, to helping to find resources to pay for community dinners and things like that. And for me, that is my role right now as I become as I am building trust with community members and community organizations so that they can see who I am and I can see who they are and we can see if there is any room for me to be a resource for them in the research in the future. Learning about Fiola's strategies for inviting a broader range of voices into scholarly discourse prompted me to ask her about the conventions of higher ed and how she approached navigating those conventions. Her answer to that question, I suspect, would resonate for many of us who work in the academy and struggle with navigating the norms that are often in tension with our authentic selves? That is a tricky question for me um, because I feel like I, I don't know if I quite relate to entirely code switching. Um, 
because academia has been a place where from the beginning I said if I was going to be here I was going to bring my full self to it um and so for me that means that there have been ways which I exist in academia which are considered unprofessional um and I'm not trying to professionalize those things right especially coming from being a black feminist and really thinking about lived experience like I struggle to think about the ways in which I need to change myself to show up to this place when being raised in the Caribbean, being a Black woman, um, being a middle-class woman also, or uh, yes, being a middle-class woman also, you know, all of those things shaped the way, shaped my journey to academia. And I didn't necessarily know how to change those things to exist within academia. So if you see me right now, if you see me on any given day, I am wearing ridiculously bright clothing with entirely too many different colors. I have a large, large pair of earrings on, loud lipstick, all of these things, which for me mark me as a Caribbean woman, which is the way I show up in academia. In terms of the language thing, um yeah there are i really try to speak as plainly as possible um <laughs> in all areas of my life um i really try to think about because my um i grew up middle class my my dad was a doctor my mom was a teacher my mom um so I grew up middle class, but I also had to code, I had to switch to fit into my public schools. I had to switch. Um, I had to turn off my accent at certain points in time when I was living in Canada. I had to do those kinds of things. And by the time I came back to academia as a 25 year old, when I started my master's program, which isn't that old by any means, but I was very much established as myself I was like if I am going to be here I'm going to be here and be my full self you know so I try as much as possible not to speak to community members any differently than I would speak to my colleagues and I am sure that for some people who are of the old guard in academia they wish I were a little bit more refined and professional but I have luckily found that most of my major academic Places have been very welcoming of the language which I choose to use, which quite often includes some swear words, you know, um, my, and so like very casually. Um, there might be a lot of subject word disagreements in the ways that I speak my Caribbean English. I try to I try to bring that as much as possible into the classroom space into the research space so I don't get lost in the process of shifting back and forth. Hearing Fayola talk about challenging the conventions of higher education, let me just suspect that she would have really interesting things to say about a topic that I often think about. How do you translate between the vernacular of higher education and the vernacular of communities who are the most vulnerable to the various threats related to sustainability? This led us to a wonderful conversation about the importance of humility, listening, and relationship building. It's really hard to translate everything all the time um, into language that everybody will understand. But I try to speak to people in academia who are committed to understanding, you know, just as the same way if I brought in a 
philosopher like you who wanted to get into the weeds of Rawls' theories of justice, you know? Um, if people really were interested, if the academics in the School of Public Affairs were genuinely interested in and committed to understanding your work, they would sit in the room and try as much as possible to understand and some things would get lost and be over their heads. But the reality is if we really try, there's a lot we can understand from each other, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think I've been really blessed to deal with colleagues and co-collaborators and co-conspirators who have been really interested in understanding and they understand that their identities, their academic background, their experiences might limit how much that they could, like how much of what community members are saying they could really understand, but they will understand enough of it for it to make sense for their framework. You know, does that, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question as a, Yes, you are answering that question perfectly. <laughs> I think I, I do think there's a large amount of uh, sometimes it is about having the right academic community and folks within academia having themselves having to recognize themselves that their expertise actually is uh, acting to obscure some things in the world that the theoretical frameworks we have blind us to things that we sometimes should be attending to because it falls outside of the way that we frame things. Um, mm -hmm. I do think there's an important element of reminding people to, to be academically humble, to recognize that, mm -hmm. that we all come in with various biases and those biases shape the way we interpret the information we get. And sometimes that me leads us to misunderstand what people are in fact trying to tell us. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was in a discussion the other day and it was a bunch of people from different disciplines talking about the same project. And I think uh, there was a certain point at which I think we were all talking past each other. Mm -hmm. um, and we really had to take a pause and try and simplify each of us trying to simplify some of the language. I'm not sure. I am sure so much got lost in translation between the physical scientists and the social scientists, you know, um, I'm sure so much got missed, but like it's an incremental process of trying to learn to understand each other, right? Mm -hmm. So hopefully the next conversation, if there is a next conversation, will be a little bit easier, we'll understand each other a little bit better. And I mean, people listening is a skill that you really just have to learn. Um, and I think people really take it for granted and listening to different kinds of languages, even within English, can be such a task that we really need to sit with what people are saying and like really build the skills to listen and to really tune in to what people coming from different places are saying if we're going to be successful community-engaged scholars. It's interesting, right? Because describing that, when you describe that process, it makes me think of sort of the process that's really common for folks that are doing community organizing, right? That when they're trying to build together a coalition uh, uh, behind some sort of uh, advocacy project, right? It, there's always mm -hmm. that element of like spending lots of time just sitting there getting to know one another and like right, being able to understand uh, how people are approaching things. Mm -hmm. 
I remember when I was working um, on that project, the anti-oppression workshop on migration and mental health, there were 10 of us who identified as, there were 10 of us who were hired at the same time as peer trainers. Um, and so we, all of us had experience with migration. We had experience with mental health issues or illness or something. And we spent six weeks together creating these workshops. I thought that the six weeks from the start, we were going to start creating these, these curricula for these workshops. And the first two weeks was just this really deep process of us getting to know each other. And it was so frustrating at certain times because it was like, okay, we can't spend another hour discussing whether or not we want to use the term mental health issues or mental health illness. You know, like we need to move past this. But mm -hmm. at the same time, those hours that we spent discussing that with each other, that language, were some of the most transformative. Those were the bonding moments of our yeah. cohort. And those were the reasons why we were able to go into some really uncomfortable situations and trust each other as our, trust our coworkers to have our back, trust our coworkers to make sure that we were safe, trust our coworkers in these really emotionally involved situations, you know, and it was such a necessary part of the process. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually something that often gets missed in higher ed, right? And in like formal Western academia, I, I think mm -hmm. right, th there's this strong sort of real individualist sort of streak within academics, uh, right, Western academics. and. I, and I, I think most people get resentful about the meetings that they don't see the purpose for, right? Like, unless we're doing something really practical and then like, this is, we, we see concrete outcomes from each meeting, folks get resentful about having to participate in meetings. And we lose mm -hmm. sometimes that opportunity to sit with each other, getting to know each other, to build community and to, right, to, yeah. to learn about how one another think about things. Mm -hmm. I miss icebreakers. Like, I miss meetings with icebreakers. I mean, there's, some of the icebreakers used to make me roll my eyes so hard. Some days I would come in and be like, I cannot do another, let's see how we are feeling today, um, icebreaker or closing activity. But now that I'm in academia and, you know, our intros are just say your name, your department, your rank. Um, I'm just really missing the what's the story of your name and the two truths and the lie and these really really um sometimes silly activities that really helped us learn to trust each other a little bit more mm -hmm. no because it's true right like i think academia is the only place where you can work where you can work have a colleague that's in the next office for like 20 years and not know anything about them as a person not one thing <laughs> <laughs> not one thing like with John, do you have children? Are you married? Like, no idea. No, yeah, no I know idea what your story is, Joe. Yeah, I, I'll know everything about like the, some esoteric thought you have and like some esoteric like topic, <laughs> but I have no idea if you, you know, like who your spouse is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is such a such a weird thing, but there are some academic communities that have managed to really become communities like some you know you hear every now and again about the department who hangs out with each other on weekends and things like that um, 
Yeah, but most of us are not like that. At this point of our conversation, Viola turned tables at me and asked me to discuss my strategies for building relationships. While normally in this podcast, I would prefer to focus on my guests rather than myself, Viola's questions got us thinking about the importance of accepting that one can err and using errors as an opportunity to learn and grow. So I decided to include my answer to her question in this podcast. What's, what's about you? Uh, my strategy is being willing to, like, when someone's clearly not happy with something I'm saying or doing, to actually, like, assume that I messed up. Most people are willing to let you know or let me know how I messed up. Uh, and so I just, I accept it. And You know you're that, doing something right because people are comfortable to tell you when you're doing something wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. Maybe part of it is trying to be open to, like, criticism and open to, like, listening mm-hmm. and open to change, right? Recognizing mm-hmm. that I'm going to get things wrong, that at any given moment I'm probably getting something wrong. And then, right, actually inviting folks to tell me how I'm messing up. And then trying to make practical change that they can see so that they yeah. know that it is actually important to me that uh, I want to get it right. I think that is such an important thing, like being open to the fact that you're getting it wrong, knowing that, I mean, part of trying is knowing that you'll get it wrong. And I mean, it's so hard to get things wrong, right? Like it's so hard to, well, at least for me, I know part of me would always like to get things right, would always like to say the right things, would always like to have the right insights and just sitting with being wrong and like trying to confront being wrong and improve on that. It's such, such a hard and trying task, but it is so, so important to work. It's so important for this work, you know? So we've reached the end of the conversation that I had with Fayol Jacobs. It was a conversation that I learned a lot from, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. I also hope that you learned something as well, and that that something will help you think more about how to integrate equity and sustainability. In the next episode, I'll meet a colleague of mine, Dr. Nina Ortiz, who's an anthropologist at the University of Minnesota Morris. Nina spent her career working to support the immigrant communities that are growing across the rural United States, and I'm really excited to share our conversation with you. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.